And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm very, very pleased to be sitting opposite uh, Dr. Gerald Mast, professor of political science at Carthage College, a frequent guest to the morning show. And we have a lot to talk about today. We are going to basically focus our attention today on the Democrats, a still crowded field of Democrats who are contending to be their party's uh, nominee uh, for president for the fall of 2018 uh, to confront uh, incumbent President uh, Donald Trump. And uh, it has already been a fascinating race, and uh, we're going to be looking at what has transpired thus far in Iowa, Nevada, New Hampshire, and uh, what is coming up uh, in the near future, uh, including uh, Super Tuesday in early March, and uh, how all of this could potentially play out. Of course, there's no way to know for certain, um, but uh, what is the road ahead for for Bernie Sanders, the current front runner? Uh, what are the prospects of Joe Biden uh, catching up? What about some of the other big contenders who at the moment seem to be faltering? Uh, is Michael Bloomberg a factor? If so, what? And uh, depending on how these various uh, contenders do, then uh, how are things shaping up to uh, culminate at the party's convention right up the road in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, later this year? It's an incredibly interesting and, of course, important story. And uh, Gerald Mast is going to make sense of all of it. Professor Gerald Mast, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Well, thanks for setting the, the bar real high, Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> um, real quick, uh, I think I've said this to you before, but I, I have to say it again. I, it just seems like we are in a moment that is a political science professor's dream in terms of the, the way really critical issues and events are playing out. And uh, it just seems like a, a smorgasbord of fascinating material for you to be discussing and dissecting uh, with your political science uh, students at Carthage. Yeah, there's certainly um, ample things to, to, to discuss and, and talk about. Um, it can be a little overwhelming at times, even for a political scientist. Uh, it's easy to become sucked into the, the, the subject to a, a, an unhealthy degree. <laughs> um, so uh, I will just encourage my fellow citizens when you feel a bit overwhelmed, it's okay to step back and stop paying um, super close attention. Right, right. <laughs> so... Uh, it's, it's been uh, kind of an amazing race thus far, uh, in particular because it has been such a crowded field, I mean, in the early going. Yeah. And I suspect that this is unprecedented, that in a presidential race we have never had so many significant contenders hang in there for quite, quite so long. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, in recent history, um, the field w winnows down um, relatively quickly. Uh, some r races aren't remotely uh, in question. In 2000, Al Gore um, was uh, battle battling with um, Bill Bradley. Battling's probably not the right word because Gore won every single state uh, contest. Um, the race in 2004 uh, featured jo John Kerry um, b battling with Wesley Clark and, and John Edwards. Uh, that race settled rel really, really quickly, um, Kerry winning all of them except for, um, I think, four uh, states he, he failed to capture. In, uh, what else? In, in, in 1988, uh, Michael Dukakis won the n nomination uh, and, um, you know, outlasted Dick Gephardt and uh, uh, Gary Hart. 
they fell out r- real, real, real quickly. Um, Jesse Jackson hung around uh, all the way till, till the convention. Never really posed a serious threat to um, Mr. Dukakis, uh, and yet uh, did function, I think, to kind of energize a debate within the party about the party's character and direction and so forth. And so if we can think about um, the nomination process, there's a couple of kind of things going on there. One is to identify who's the nominee, individual who's going to um, represent the party in the general election. Um, But there's also an opportunity within this overall um, nomination process for ideas to be debated and and, and contested and a kind of general sense of where the party's identity should be. Um, And so, uh, you know, every process is about picking the nominee. And in some years, the debate over the identity and, and, and direction of, of the party is muted and, and mm. mild, and, and there's really not a lot of debate. Not right now. And this year, of course, um, you know, not only is the field very large with respect to the numbers of people um, still contending uh, for, for the, that first function of, of the nomination process, we have a raging debate uh, over the identity of the party and the, the, the character of it. We have a process that has come under a lot of scrutiny and under a lot of criticism that it, uh, in terms of which which primaries and caucuses are first yes, and then yes, sort of the yes. pacing of what happens uh, from this point on. Do you share some of those concerns that this process is not set up in a way that is ultimately maybe beneficial to the party and or the American people? Yes, uh, for sure. And I think that one of the um, co- consequences that I would predict will come of this uh, season is that the Democratic National Committee will sit down and have a long, difficult, and uh, uh, thoughtful um, assessment of of how the the, um, the process played out and what are those problems and what should it do different. And I think that um, at the top of the list will be the calendar, who gets to go first, how are they going to, to, to um, arrange that. And that'll be a hard, hard conversation uh, and a very difficult um, uh, task if, in fact, they um, do shake up the calendar. But I think the most trenchant criticisms of the process as uh, it is currently are that you have a handful of states that have been kind of granted this privilege of going first Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, um, and Nevada. These are states that get to weigh in first, and in the process of weighing in first, they create momentum, they shape perception, and that has this huge impact on this massive day that's coming um, right down the pike, Super Tuesday on March 3rd. And so, um, that's a, 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 so to this point, we've had four contests, or we will have four, had four contests um, once Saturday's uh, primary in South Carolina c- completes. The total number of delegates allocate, allocated in those four contests is something like 155, if I did my math right. A week later, right, Super Tuesday, there will be 16 contests, 14 states, a territory, and, and Democrats abroad. Uh, will go, right? That's that's uh, four times as many contests uh, as has happened to this point. And more than a third of the delegates that will be allocated in the whole process will be allocated in that, on that single day. On that single right? day. And so um, it's hugely important. And the, the, the contests that have come so far have kind of created this narrative, created a, a kind of 
order, a front runner. Uh, Mr. Sanders is currently the front runner, which will impact the 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 the, the voting um, that occurs on Super Tuesday. And so um, there are real reasonable questions about the fairness of of kind of granting or conferring um, privilege on on this handful of states. Uh, uh, that will have this kind of big impact, especially for states, two of them, um, N- N- Nevada and uh, Iowa, run caucuses rather than primaries. And in the difference, of course, in a caucus, the key difference is that, is that in a caucus, you'll get much lower turnout. Fewer people will go because of the enormous time commitment right. associated you don't just, with Right. You yeah, don't you, just go and cast a ballot and go home. You stand um, stand sometimes for hours right. at a time. And Correct. And so... so um, to the extent that one can make the argument that caucuses are not particularly representative of the populations within the state, right, that amplifies the anger or consternation that many Democrats have that that, that states like Iowa and Nevada um, uh, already have a kind of disproportionate amount of influence. Right. And I should think it also feels so strange for the candidates when you think about how the candidates descended on Iowa and spent so much time there. I mean, going to every little county fair and right. visiting all these little hamlets. And and then at some point, the nature of the race changes completely. And there is no time to do any of that sort of right. things in these 14 states on Super Tuesday, for instance. I mean, it, it's an absolute impossibility. And they have to wage... The, the battle at that point in a completely different way. It really does. And this is actually an argument for Iowa and uh, the caucuses. It requires candidates for the White House to actually interface mm-hmm. with people, right, to, to shake some hands, to, to put some hands on shoulders, to listen to, you know, real ordinary folks' problems. And, and, and it creates a kind of connection between the people who want to become president of the United States and at least some real people in the in the United mm. States, and so I mean, th- and, and that's I think, f- f- just my personal view is a compelling argument um, uh, in favor of a process like Iowa's. But you're absolutely right that the nature of running is going to change really, really quickly. And so when you look at at candidate, and because the candidates put so much energy and resources and effort into these early states, you wind up with some candidates who have done, you know, okay to this point, um, finding themselves in dire p- trouble because they lack the funds to compete across the country all at the same time in, in, in 12 or 14 different states at once in which, you know, um, uh, you know big media markets are going to um, re- require uh, serious investments and so forth. So a candidate like... Um, Amy Klobuchar, for instance, has done you know reasonably well in in a number of ways. Is low on money in uh, relative to some of her her candidates, her her, her uh, yeah, fellow candidates, and so her prospects moving forward have to change in a variety of ways. One of which is all of a sudden she's going to have to start pulling in money uh, at at a rate that she hasn't been able to to this point. We're speaking with Professor Gerald Mast from the political science faculty at Carthage about this uh, ferocious fight on the Democratic side for who is going to be the Democratic uh, nominee to confront uh, incumbent President Donald Trump uh, come November. So we've had Iowa, Nevada, New Hampshire, South Carolina is coming up. And at the moment, uh, Bernie Sanders is is the front runner, um, pretty decisively so at, at the moment. Uh, one of the scenarios that I have heard as people have 
analyze what has happened thus far is, yes, Bernie Sanders is the front runner, but if you group together all of the people that are more moderate within the party, uh, if, if, if the moderate wing of the party were represented by one candidate, this would look very, very different. But instead, you have the moderate element of the Democratic Party, in a sense, dispersed among uh, an array of candidates that sort of fall under that umbrella. Uh, and then other analysts say that's really a simplistic way to look at it. So h- how would you kind of shape this, and how should we interpret the lead that Bernie Sanders has at the moment in, in this particular respect? Yeah, I, I would, you know, hem and haw and qualify it by saying that's sort of true, uh, <laughs> but but it is too simplistic in some ways. It, it does speak to some, some, some things that are real. Uh, and so... Um, you know, for instance, we can kind of look at the the 2016 race on the Republican side as a, a very kind of clear analog, uh, where you had uh, a candidate, an insurgent candidate, who had very little, if not any, uh, loyalty to the Republican establishment, enter the field, run against the Republican uh, establishment at, at least as much as he ran against the, the Democratic Party, and uh, att- attracted a, a kind of minority, small, uh, not small, a large minority of very energetic supporters, um, but but never really rose above plurality support. And that's Donald Trump, right, in, in a very large field in which the non-Trump candidates were dividing up the non-Trump support. And they did it long enough, right, um, to the point where um, he became, Mr. Trump became the inevitable uh, nominee. And so that may, in fact, be playing out um, in in uh, 2020 on the Democratic side. I guess where I say it, would say it's, it's too simplistic is that most voters uh, don't have very clear, coherent ideological assessments of uh, the country's policy problems of of, the, of government or their candidates, and so I mean, ideology matters to to, to some degree. Uh, it's not to be discounted, but people also um, kind of vote for a variety of less kind of intellectual or rational reasons, right? There's an old saying that people vote not for what they want, but who they are. Hmm. Uh, and so to the extent that, that um, a voter identifies more with, with one candidate um, on a personal level, you have a, like, I like this person. I don't always agree with some of their issues, but I just feel that she's an authentic kind of candidate, right? So authenticity is a, a factor that matters. And so um, people talk about um, lanes, the progressive lane and the, 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 the moderate lane, so to speak. Um, and that works to a point. But People, voters, occupy the progressive lane or the the, the moderate lane for a variety of reasons, some of which are ideological, but others are are more personal. And they can cross over one Mm. in in, in either direction um, for a number of different reasons. Right. So one one thing I've heard spelled out is that uh, I think this was at least officially true in Iowa that you had... If, if the simplistic view were true, that you're either for Bernie Sanders or you're for one of these more moderate candidates, then for these moderate candidates, your second choice would never be Bernie. If you're a Buttigieg person, your second choice would be Klobuchar or Warren or Booker or whoever. And and in many cases, it, it wasn't. Right. You, your first might right. be Buttigieg, but your second would be Bernie. Or your first would be Bo- Bernie, Correct. and your second would be Buttigieg. And that, right. that's that changing lanes thing you were there talking about. There is an assumption that... Um, uh, you know, 
all of Liz Warren's supporters, if they stop supporting Liz Warren, will shift to Sanders because their policy positions are reasonably similar. Um, and I would argue, from what I've been able to see, that, that many of them would, but by no means all of them would, right? There would be a significant share of them that would shift to, to Biden or to, to, to Buttigieg or, or um, another alternative. Right. I guess uh, one of the questions that this, this brings up is one of electability. And it sounds like for many, many Democrats, maybe for most Democrats, that is the pressing issue is I want our party to nominate somebody who can defeat uh, President Trump. And, <laughs> and then, of course, that becomes the, the million-dollar, a billion-dollar question of right. who is the most electable? Right. What does that even mean in right. 2020? Right, right. Uh, the, the, the electability factor is never going to go away. It will always be a, a question that voters um, are going to be asking themselves. But I guess I would like for people to set aside their very conventional assumptions about what is electable for a moment and, and take some, some critical assessment of those things. Um, you know, certainly uh, President Trump is president and was n- nobody would have, have, have defined him as the most electable candidate. Hmm. Uh, maybe even Mr. Trump wouldn't have defined himself at, that, uh, at the very <laughs> beginning of the nomination process. Um, He's this insurgent outsider. In 2008, uh, very close election, um, small field, two people in it, but it kind of went down to the wire um, between this young, uh, reasonably inexperienced uh, senator from Illinois, uh, from a a demographic group that has never occupied the White House, against former first lady senator from New York, uh, uh, firmly ensconced in the Democratic establishment, um, and, and, you know, Barack Obama became president. He wasn't the, the, the conventional uh, pick. So uh, it, it's, it, it's dangerous to think you have a sense of who the safe candidate is. Uh, it, it requires you to understand exactly what the electorate's going to be, exactly what the electorate is going to want. And on some level, we're engaged in some guesswork there. Mm. Let's kind of talk about uh, the remaining candidates and how they've been doing thus far. We'll have to do this in relatively quick fashion, but we can take take a little extra time, I think, with our front runner Bernie Sanders. Uh, I, I would I would love to hear from you what you think is the basis of his tremendous success thus far, and and also uh, we've already drawn some intriguing parallels between. Uh, Bernie Sanders and and Donald Trump. Certainly they are two very, very different people, very different human beings, very different resumes. But there are intriguing parallels in terms of what they are achieving and, in a sense, what they have a way of tapping into. How do you see that relationship as you characterize the nature of Bernie Sanders' success thus far? Well, I'll start by noting... um, an observation by a historian uh, of politics uh, at Georgetown University, Michael Kazin, uh, an observation that I, I happen to think is correct. Professor Kazin argues that um, Bernie Sanders has already won uh, the larger uh, battle here, right, the, the war for the identity of the Democratic Party. Whether he wins the nomination or not is another question, but what he has successfully done from Kazin and, and, and my perspective is he has defined kind of progressivism, right, a real kind of 
more active government engaged in uh, a project to make the, country, the political economy more sustainable ecologically and more um, uh, equal in terms of the distribution of income and opportunity. Um, he has won that vision, and, and even if somebody from that so-called moderate lane uh, captures the nomination, the party is moving in that direction. Uh, this is especially true when you just look at the level of enthusiasm, right, that is going on at the, the, the various events, and some of the largest and most enthusiastic uh, events uh, seem to be um, those held by, by Bernie Sanders and, and Liz Warren. When you look at and break down the, the support for the various candidates by age, um, Senator Sanders is drawing the youngest uh, adults, right? And so they actually are quite literally the future of the party. Mm. And so th the, the messages that are resonating with them are the kinds of messages that are likely to continue to resonate as the party moves forward into the um, future. Last week, uh, CBS News, I believe it was CBS News and YouGov polling firm, uh, came out with a, a, a poll, a huge sample of 10,000 um, people, uh, relatively small um, margin of error. And some really interesting things um, were in that poll. One was asking likely Democratic voters who they felt, which of the candidates in the field most likely would fight for issues that are um, for, for fight for people like them which candidate would f most likely fight for people like them and there's a, a real spread right the, the the most the candidate with the most kind of support right was bernie sanders um 57 percent of the, the the democrats in the sample said they felt bernie sanders would fight for people like them more than than the others the next very close to sanders was elizabeth warren Right, and then there's this big drop off uh, all the way d down. So Sanders was at 57, I think Warren was at like 55, something like that, and then it drops all the way down to the low 30s, 31, 30. Uh, people to judge and, and Joe Biden, um, right? So there's this gap. What does that suggest? To me, it suggests that that this kind of progressive vision is the one that is being espoused by, by Sanders and, and Warren is the one that, that many people feel is reflective of a desire to both understand uh, ordinary Democrats and uh, f fight for them. And then if you think about the, the, um, the kind of the rhetorical strategies that are being um, employed it, it, by kind of establishment moderate uh, candidates versus Sanders and, and Warren, um, this is playing out qu quite a bit in the debates, especially last night, um, is to kind of characterize uh, Senator Sanders as this radical who's out of touch with the larger, mm. with the, the larger country and who, um, because he um, uh, self-identifies as a, a democratic socialist, right, represents something that the, the country is unlikely to, to, to accept. And Senator Sanders' response to that is, what I am proposing is not remotely radical. And it's hard to dismiss his argument. I mean, if we look at some um, uh, of the polling on positions, so for instance, uh, an example is, is the free college, uh, tuition-free um, uh, higher education, uh, public universities and colleges. And some of the candidates like uh, Mr. Buttigieg and, and Ms. Klobuchar have argued that that that, that 
position that Sanders and Warren are taking is like this giveaway, mm-hmm. uh, free stuff for people, uh, uh, that this is kind of something that, that, that Americans are, are unlikely um, to, to, to support. Um, and Pew, Pew Research Center has actually some data on this very issue, right? Uh, and so um, uh, a, a week or so ago, uh, the Pew Research uh, Center asked Americans what they think about tuition-free um, uh, college, and this is what they found. Um, 83% of Democrats uh, and Democratic leaners support it. Wow. 83% of Democrats support Whew. it. Right? So is this a radical idea? Not in the Democratic Party, it's not. Right. right? Uh, uh, 39% of Republicans and Republican leaners supported it, right? Mm. So well, that's a minority. But that's a pretty high number. But 39%. Yeah. 39%. Um, overall, 63% of all American adults, 63%. So that's not a radical idea. It might be a bad idea, right, in terms of policy. There might be negative consequences um, uh, that, that would stem f- f- from such, such a strategy. That's, I mean, another debate. But from a political standpoint, it's not a radical idea. Uh, if, if by radical, we mean something that's really unpopular with the American people. So Sanders is, is, seems to be, you know, right about, about that. Uh, if you look at, you know, his characterization of climate change as this looming existential threat to, to, to civilizations, um, perhaps the scale of which he's characterizing it is p- further along than many um, Americans would, would, would agree to, although not necessarily the scientific community. Um, what, uh, what we see when we ask the public about these kinds of things, again, this is the, the Pew Research Center's um, findings of very recent, a couple of weeks ago. They found that the environment, protecting the environment, is now at a level or slightly higher than protecting the economy as a priority wow. amongst the public. When it comes to um, viewing climate change as a top priority, 78% of Democrats say that it's a top priority. That number drops way down to 21% for Republicans. And so climate change is one of those issues for which there's a really mm. big disagreement right. between the parties. But it's not radical to say that for Democrats, we should you know, put climate change at the top of near or at or near the top of the list of things that we should tackle. When it comes to things like uh, Medicare for all, right? similar, you have relatively high rates of support within um, the Democratic Party for it. Uh, off the top of my head, it's somewhere in the 60s. And so that's not a radical idea for, for, for Democrats. Um, and heck, we have a Medicare f- uh, for Americans who are 65 and older. Um, so by definition, we already have this kind of uh, uh, approach to health care for a large segment of the population. This is an extension of it to um, people who are younger than 65. Again, might not be a good idea as a matter of policy, um, but it's not necessarily a radical one for Democrats. It's much less unpopular um, for for, for moderates and for, for, for Republicans. And so, you know, it might not be a great political strategy moving into the fall, but to characterize it as radical, um, you know, I mean, not really, not in some ways. In any event, I guess I would say that to the extent that these kinds of positions that Warren and, and Sanders are, are, are pitching, to the extent that there is some possible radical element to them, they seem, based on the, the evidence, the social survey evidence, to be 
capable of, of shifting into a much more conventional perspective. And when it comes to the, the identity of the party and the, the character of the party, ha- just having this conversation makes these things much more likely moving forward. And so um, this is where Kazan, come, I think, is right, that, that, that the, the, the dialogue, the discourse that's playing out, right, involves a narrative being pushed by Sanders and Warren that is, is really resonating and compelling with many Democratic voters. Mm. And, uh, and in a sense, the, the tone of the entire party is, is shifting in a progressive direction Thanks to to Mr. Sanders to a large extent. Correct. So, I mean, if we think about party history, uh, and, and the the Democratic Party operated through much of the 20th century on what historians and political scientists call the New Deal coalition. The New Deal coalition built by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, consisting of Northern Democrats, largely clustered in the cities, Southern Democrats throughout the South, Black uh, Americans who have traditionally been Republicans and uh, progressives in the North who had traditionally been Republicans. So he pulled this this coalition together and that dominated in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and and into the 60s. It began to unravel initially in the 60s when the Democratic Party decided, well, you know, we're going to get behind civil rights um, because the civil rights movement kind of compelled them to. The, that created a fracture within the, the, the New Deal coalition as Southern Democrats became unhappy with the party's embrace of civil rights. And so in the years that followed, the Republican Party saw an opportunity, the opportunity being to let's convince these Southern Democrats to become Republicans, which was successful. Right? Mm. This, is, this is Nixon's strategy, uh, Reagan, um, Reagan's strategy. When eventually this strategy on the part of the Republican Party kind of came into its own, into its you know, fruition, is, is in 1980 with, with Reagan's election. Um, and if you'll remember the term Reagan Democrats, what Reagan did was he pulled a number of Democrats into the, the, the party, working class white guys in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, the, the Midwest, who were kind of economically liberal, many of them kind of probably union members, but socially kind of conservative. Tradition, they thought of themselves as traditional Americans. Um, and, and the, the conversion of the South from solidly Democratic to, to, to solidly Republican. So the, the, that moment, right, represents this kind of shift, a conservative era, right, Repu- uh, Ronald Reagan um, ushers in. And success is persuasive. He wins uh, in 1980, wins a massive landslide in 1984. And in so doing, he is kind of conveying this message to the electorate. It's cool to be conservative, right? And so... Um, uh, uh, the, the, the country shifted in a way, including the Democratic Party. So that mm. you have kind of key operatives in the Democratic Party form a group called the DLC, the Democratic Leadership uh, Council. Uh, one of the architects of that was a guy by the name of Bill Clinton. Mm. Um, and the, the, the purpose of that organization was to make the Democratic Party more moderate. Right to move it closer to the center to make it more business friendly, this is part of what is often referred to as the third way. Right, so the third way represents this middle ground between parties on the left, parties on the right. The third way kind of cuts between the two of them: socially more liberal, more moderate uh, to conservative on on economic issues. And so, a guy like Bill Clinton, Democrat, elected in '92, an announces the era of big government is over. 
That's a Democrat saying that, right? Yeah. Uh, and so um, the, the reinventing government is this big initiative um, by Clinton and Gore to shrink the size of the federal government, to make it more lean, more efficient, to contract out, to prime, right? All kind of consistent with what we think of as conservative um, uh, philosophy. In the 1970s, Richard Nixon says, we're all Keynesians now, kind of referring to this kind of everybody's bought into the idea that government should spend to stimulate the economy in downturns. That's reversed after the 1980s in which kind of moderate free trade kinds of uh, economics become kind of this collective commitment. Free trade is uh, Clinton signs off on NAFTA. Hmm. He helps usher China into the, 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 the world um, community of trading partners. And one of the, f the, the fallout there is that you get a bunch of kind of social conservatives, but kind of economic liberals on the working class feeling like the Democratic Party has kind of betrayed them in, in a way, right? Uh, they don't particularly like the liberal direction culturally of the Democratic Party on social issues, and they don't particularly see the Democratic Party as looking working out for working class people. Yeah. Sanders represents a clear shift in that thinking, right? A and Warren, both of them are arguing that the Democratic Party went too far to the center and needs to return to its kind of roots in a in a FDR f way as a working class people's party. Mm. So what what the, the what their competitors might want to characterize as this radical leap in socialism. The, in, you know, um, they're saying is this is this is a return to our roots. It's really interesting to look at 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 these proposals in those two different lights. I mean, to see them described in those vastly different right. ways. Well, I mean, I think that where Sanders is vulnerable is in his kind of embrace of, of the term democratic socialism. Socialism That's... being something of an anathema to many Americans. Well, not all Americans. For Democrats, it's it's not particularly unpopular. Hmm. Um, for independents, it certainly is. And for Republicans, it's even more unpopular. There's diff variation in terms of uh, its perception by age as well. For young people, it's not particularly frightening at all. Uh, right. Many of them are actually quite fine with the idea of it. For older Americans who grew up in the Cold War era, it's a, it's a, a terrible idea, right? Mm. So there's real kind of generational differences. And so by embracing the term, right, I think Sanders is, is, is gratuitously taking on hits, uh, self-inflicted harm that he, he did, wouldn't necessarily need to do it. But in some ways, he strikes me as a kind of stubborn fellow uh, who, who d doesn't want to back down. Um, if he were to instead kind of push this idea of, of a, a new New Deal, a, a, an FDR kind of commitment to government creating opportunities for those for whom the market hasn't created many opportunities, for redistributing um, the, the, the incredible imbalance of wealth and income that has happened, I think he'd have far more, far more um, appeal. Right, without that label being attached. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's uh, being either stubborn or courageous or some combination of, of the two. Right. So he is the front runner at the moment. By no means is he the inevitable nominee for the presidency, but, uh, but at the moment he certainly has a decisive lead in terms of, of, of delegates. Uh, there is a cluster of, of candidates uh, behind him, um, among them former Vice President Joe Biden, who, of course, uh, uh, has performed pretty poorly in these first three races. Um, what 
what kind of challenge confronts Joe Biden now? Right. So um, what what Biden and his supporters are looking at, I, I would think, uh, they should if they, they're not, is 1992, um, a, a guy by the name of Bill Clinton captures the, the nomination. Bill Clinton didn't win a, a, a race until Super Tuesday. The first hmm. state he won was on Super Tuesday. Wow. Did very well on Super Tuesday and used that momentum to to um, kind of sweep the field in the, the, the weeks that followed. Um, so, you know, you can be behind uh, going into Super Tuesday and turn things around. Um, and and th- that all starts, I think, with, with, with South Carolina. If, if President... Vice, sorry, Vice President Biden is capable of winning South Carolina by a, a, a really solid um, uh, margin. Then he can head into Super Tuesday, kind of talking about, "Look, I am the party, uh, uh, the party's future. I'm the one who can reach out to kind of um, a more diverse group of people, African Americans being a key constituency, uh, and and hope to do well in those kinds of states on Super Tuesday." that resemble South Carolina. So Alabama goes, Arkansas goes, uh, Tennessee goes. These are, these are states more moderate uh, ideologically, politically, um, and the Democratic uh, groups in those states will be more heavily African-American. So if he can parlay uh, a win on South Carolina into wins in those states, maybe do very well in Texas, uh, kind of, you know, damage control in California, he can emerge out of Super Tuesday with with something of a fighting chance. Interesting. By the way, we don't have time to talk about this very much, but do we know why Joe Biden has such high numbers when it comes to African American voters? I mean, is there we can we attach that strong support for Biden in that in that group to anything in particular? Well, let's first note that there seems to be variation within the African American um, electorate. Uh, with respect to Mr. Biden, his oh. support is stronger amongst older uh, voters. And so um, that's true of older Democrats in general, uh, mm. even amongst white voters. So part of it is, I would, this is a little bit of conjecture on my part, is familiarity. Mm. He's a, a, a fellow who's been around for a very, very long time. Um, and so in some sense, uh, voters feel they know him, right? And, and when we look at the relationship between voters and politicians, Politicians try to instill in voters a sense of trust, a trust based on uh, identity, identify with you, a sense of empathy. I, this person empathizes with me in a, in a position of qualification. And Mr. Biden, I think, is clearly qualified, right? And it is very, nobody's going to argue he's not qualified. Um, identity, they know him. They're f- familiar. He's really good, I would argue, at kind of person-to-person politics, mm. much better than he is on, on the debate stage. Um and uh, uh, empathy, right? As a, a, a member of the Obama administration, right? The, the first African-American president, very, very, very well liked um, uh, in the African-American community. He has that association that works to his advantage. Hmm. Uh, we have these other contenders, of course, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Jamie Klobuchar. And we have not yet mentioned Michael Bloomberg. Uh, to what extent is he a factor in this at all, having not been on a ballot yet, but of right. course spending a lot of money on <laughs> right. commercials and so on. Uh, do, is it possible to even know what c- kind of role he's likely to, to play, if any? Well, not with certainty, of course. Um, again, a lot of guesswork. I'm pretty confident that he'll be a factor. He'll be a factor uh, if for no other reason than the, the amount of money that he has to spend on, on this. Um, 
it's hard to see him having a really strong shot at the nomination for a number of reasons. One, I've kind of already established that the energy in the party seems to be moving in a more progressive direction. Mr. Bloomberg has made a reputation on being a, a center-oriented fellow, right, a Republican for, for, for quite a while. Um, and the very effective critique of Mr. Bloomberg's candidacy offered by um, Ms. Warren in the last couple mm-hmm. of debates, I think, illustrates how easy it is to kind of cast him as this person who doesn't belong uh, in this process, right, for a variety of reasons. Um, he has – there's questions, right, about, about his relationships with women in his business, uh, the stop and frisk issue uh, in New York City – all of which are kind of red flags for a Democratic electorate that seems to be moving in this progressive direction. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, he has a lot of money. He has a pretty, outside of you know, stop and frisk, a pretty good record at, at, at running um, New York City. The city has uh, improved in a variety of different ways. He seems a very, very competent manager. It's how he's casting himself. So, I mean, you can put together an argument for him. It just seems in some sense that this isn't the right political moment within the Democratic Party for him. Hmm. Uh, I did not watch the debate last night, but I understand that it was uh – Pretty ferocious, and, Red uh, and, and tooth and, and claw, right? And and in particular, uh, I know that you were a little dismayed by uh, the way in which uh, some of these candidates who are behind Bernie Sanders were really lashing out in ways that you, I think, feel was ultimately probably counterproductive. But it kind of points to the desperate straits that several of these. Uh, uh, folks find themselves in right now. Yeah, I think anxiety levels are super high uh, in all camps, right? Um, but some camps have a, you know, they're anxious, but can have a reason to feel optimistic. Other camps are anxious and they're holding off the inevitable. Um, and so because there's anxiety levels are high, uh, uh, and we're moving, you know, really close to Super Tuesday. They have to do something to shake, shake up the dynamic. It's one thing to say, look, anything can happen. It's true. Anything can happen. But we have, we have data at this point about what voters' intentions are in the states ahead. If you look at the, 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 the public opinion polls that we have on Super Tuesday states, I mean, Sanders is number one or number two in all of them, right? And so if, mm. if – or almost all of them. Um, I think he's tied for third in Oklahoma. Uh, if the polls of voters' preferences in these states hold, well then, I mean, it's hard to kind of see a way to kind of dislodge um, Mr. Sanders from from heading into the end process with a plurality or majority of the delegates. And so they've got to do something. They've got to change it up, right? And so they're, it's high risk to be negative and to, 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 to be critical. Um, but at some point, you just have to ask yourself, what do we have to lose at this point? Right. Uh, I heard on uh, Pod Save America in their analysis of, I think, the not last night's debate, but the debate before that, uh, uh, one of them said, uh, I don't think you can attack yourself to the head of the pack. I mean, the, it, it takes more than just claws and attack to, to especially, do that. Especially for a candidate like Senator Klobuchar or, or uh, Mayor Buttigieg, who kind of present themselves as as nice people, calm, reasonable uh, coalition builders. Mm. To come out uh, kind of as this fiery uh, uh, kind of attack uh, uh, a person kind of seems inconsistent with who, who they're 
trying trying to, to cast themselves. But all of those candidates are really kind of caught in what in social scientists science we call a prisoner's dilemma, right? That is to say, it works to the advantage of every one of those non-Sanders candidates for the others to drop out. If the others drop out and they stay in, hmm. well, then the, all of a sudden the game has changed and now they've got a legitimate shot. But that's true for every one of them. And so the logic of it being true for every one of them means they all stay in and that will potentially right, doom them uh, to the extent we can use the word doom, to, to, to uh, the, the Mr. Sanders moving forward. Right, and they all appear to be very tenacious at, uh, at, at the moment. So. Yes, uh, with, I guess the one thing that struck me was um, Senator Warren's uh, attacks on, on Sanders. She very cautiously defended Sanders on policy issues. And, and, and his approach. So she doesn't want to do kind of self-damage to the kind of progressive uh, argument. Where she drew a distinction between herself and, and Mr. Sanders is, is in their relative degrees of capability of being, you know, effective at, at, at being president. Um, and, you know, I, I think she makes a compelling case uh, but the others very much uh, are, 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 are moving in a very critical direction against Mr. Sanders as a, as a, uh, a, a, on a personal level as well as on a, a kind of a, a, a anti-progressive political policy position. Right. I don't think you're a big fan of these debates, most of them, the way they are kind of structured and formatted and, and moderated. Especially. No, I'm, I'm not a fan of the, their structure. Uh, I would like to see more conversational approaches. What I would do if I were to create a, a, a forum is I would break them up into smaller groups and I would say, look, um, I'd, I'd seat them at a table. Hmm. I would have one moderator who facilitated a conversation and I would say, we're going to talk about um, economic policy tonight. Keep it to economic policy. And then let them talk hmm. to each other. Uh, ask them questions, kind of b develop um, positions and so forth. And then you hold another um, roundtable conversation about environmental policy. Then you hold one on immigration policy, Gun foreign policy, over, yeah. right? Uh, but you, you create conversation rather than this, you get a minute, 15 um, seconds to address this enormously complicated issue that I've framed in a way that's hostile to you and has invited others to kind of attack. And so... Um, Many of the questions I kind of feel are are less about illuminating the audience with by eliciting kind of a thoughtful policy argument and more directed towards entertaining the audience by encouraging mm. the, the 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 candidates to attack each other. It's like somebody who produces The Bachelor on TV is producing these, I mean, trying to engineering it for a certain thing to happen. It's, it's less firing line and more Jerry Springer, and it really shouldn't be. Right, absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, we need to draw this conversation to a close, but of course, I, I think just the, the nature of this conversation is, you know, kind of uh, underscored the significance of all that is, uh, all that is happening, and we'll watch with, of course, great interest what transpires in South Carolina this weekend, right? Correct, and Saturday. Then, and then, of course, uh, Super Tuesday coming up on... March first, 3rd. Yeah, March 3rd. That's going to be huge. 40% of the United States population is represented in those 
14 states and the two other races that are part of Super Tuesday. So sometime thereafter, it'll be time to have you back to have another conversation <laughs> about this. And, of course, ahead of the convention in Milwaukee, wh- wherever we happen to be, that's going to be important, too, and playing out right in our backyard. So I look forward to ha- us having uh, at least a couple more conversations through the course of this really uh, important race. Well, I, I did, too, as, as well. Dr. Uh, Gerald Mast, professor of political science at Carthage College, joining us today here on WGTD.